is to let others know who truly rules and who truly reigns. As Nebuchadnezzar gives testimony of what would appear to be a conversion in this chapter. Keep that in mind. We'll come to that conclusion at the end of our study of this chapter, which, by the way, isn't going to be today. Just thought I'd let you know. So let's first consider the greeting then. There is a greeting that is given, of course, in verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. Now, let me ask you this. Does this sound like the Apostle Paul could have written this? Peace be multiplied unto you. It sounds like it, doesn't it? He always began his letters, Paul did, by certainly calling out the people to whom he was writing. And then he offered them the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember that this portion of the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic, the language of Babylon. And also consider that it was probably transcribed by Daniel himself. And with this understanding, the application of the inspired nature of the text, in other words, it was deemed inspired by God. Why is it here? In a book that we know from Genesis to Revelation is God-breathed and inspired. All Scripture, by the way, is inspired by God. God-breathed. As we were told by Paul himself in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says, all Scripture. Now we do know that Daniel is part of Scripture, don't we? Why do we know that Daniel is part of Scripture? Well, we could go into a lot of theological reasons, but one very, more, very important reason Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel. And that, for us, that's all we need to know. And he quoted from it as a book of Scripture. So all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So whatever it is that we're studying tonight and next week in this particular chapter is for our good. It is for our growth. In Christ. Now, as far as decrees by kings go in those days, the decrees of any king, any proclamation would be sent out to every province, to every city, town, village, and other appointed areas, and they would, uh, these proclamations would be read by what we today call town criers. Of course, we don't have town criers anymore. Now we have Google and Yahoo and uh, MSN and uh, uh, Fox News and uh, all kinds of other ways of learning what's going on in the world. Uh, so the town criers of those days all served in, in those towns and villages. And a proclamation would come. He, he would obviously have to be literate. He had, had to know how to read and, and then to project his voice to tell everybody what the proclamation by the king or whomever was. And these town criers were, uh, town criers were to read 
this way because, again, most people were illiterate. Most people could not read in those days. And besides, as I said, there, there was no cable TV, no 24-hour news cycles, no internet. And the proclamations were distributed and heard like the viral videos of today. Unfortunately, you know, when you look at YouTube nowadays, there's so much junk on there. And you wonder, what, what, can you get any good out of it? Uh, I think most of us would if we, you know, we were looking for a certain subject to study or to, to learn. But most of the time you have to get past all of the junk that's out there. But not from a king. A king gives a proclamation. Everybody needed to hear it. More than likely, they needed to hear it because if you didn't hear it and obey whatever the proclamation was, more than likely you'd probably lose your head. So it was probably good for everybody to stand there and listen and and accept whatever the king had to say. So with all of this in mind, this was very significant because this was a testimony. Listen, this was a testimony about the Most High God. And now the next two verses prompt the the question. Is this more than a testimony? Is this a confession of faith? Well, let's listen to what Nebuchadnezzar says in verses 2 and 3. It says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God has wrought or done toward me or accomplished or worked toward me. And then he says this, How great are His signs! How mighty are His wonders! His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Now think about that. This king, Nebuchadnezzar, who thought himself to be the king of kings and the lord of all lords in all the world, now says, the Most High God, His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and His dominion is from generation to generation. Now let me ask you this. Does this sound like a pagan king or does it not sound like one of the psalmists? In particular, David. Well, hold that thought. Because if this is a confession of faith by a king, it is indeed a rare occurrence historically because uh, especially coming from the king of Babylon. I mean, because he was the king of Babylon, he was the most pagan of pagan kings. Nebuchadnezzar certainly came to realize that God's kingdom and not his was the everlasting kingdom. He came to realize that God's kingdom and not his was the everlasting kingdom. He also came to realize that no one can have true dominion except the Most High God. Not even He could have dominion like the God of Israel could have dominion. The God of Daniel. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. As I said, it could sound like the psalmist David. Think of what David wrote in Psalm 145, verses 10 through 13. David said, all thy works. Now, I want want to make it very clear that this is worship. This is worship from the heart and the mouth and the life of David. David. 
all thy works shall praise thee, O Lord, and thy saints shall bless thee. They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Now notice verse 13. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endureth throughout all generations. That sounds like Nebuchadnezzar. Praise and worship unto our God. And let's not forget, by the way, to mention to whom the kingdom belongs. Let's not forget to mention to whom the, king, the kingdom belongs. Peter helps us with that, of course. We all should know. But Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says, Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you shall never fall. Now notice what he says. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into what? The everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So not only giving acknowledgement to the Most High God that His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and that His dominion is from generation to generation. It is to know who that King is. And that is Jesus, our King. So let's get into the setting now of this proclamation of, of Nebuchadnezzar by looking at Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. He says, I, I Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. Now stop and think. You look at that and you think, gee whiz, all, all is well in the world. Because I'm king. All is well. I'm in my house. I'm in my palace. I'm flourishing. Which means I'm just getting more blessings being this king of all the world. All is good. All is peaceful. All is safe. Because of me. As we get into this portion of the chapter, let me say that, first of all, that we're not going to enter into the realm of amateur psychology, okay? We're not going to get into the realm of amateur psychology in the pulpit as some preachers do and attempt to do and diagnose Nebuchadnezzar with a typical form of insanity because that's what some will do as you read on into the rest of the chapter. No psychobabble is going to be necessary here. We're not dealing with any hereditary mental disease because these are all things that have been said about Nebuchadnezzar at this point. Nebuchadnezzar was quite sane. His problem was simply that he was a sinner. Yes, he was an idolatrous sinner. He was a deplorable sinner and he was a reprobate sinner, but he was a sinner. Just like all of us were before we came to know Jesus. 
But the text is going to be very clear as we enter into this chapter. And that is that God sends judgment. God sends judgment. And the Lord will hand Nebuchadnezzar over to that state of mind, as we shall see. The state of mind of having lost it all. By the way, the, that rest that he mentions here in, in, in verse 4, that really is the false peace of the ungodly. The ungodly can have peace for a lot of reasons. The ungodly can have peace because they, they've made it in life. They, they've, they've, they've climbed that, you know, that uh, uh, ladder to success. Whether or not they've climbed over the backs of many people to get there doesn't matter to them. They've reached a pinnacle in their life and to them, reaching that is, is safety, it's peace. Their bank accounts are full. But it's false. What does it matter if a man gained the whole world but lose his own soul? What does it matter? It's false. And the Lord will soon shake Nebuchadnezzar from that false sense of security. But think about this. When we came to know Jesus Christ, did He not do the same with us? He shook our world from a false sense of security to the point where we realized that we needed a Savior. We needed a Savior. We didn't think we needed one for a long time because we were making it on our own. Or, or others were certainly providing for our needs. We, we, we depended upon everybody else but God. But now we had to come to the realization that we must depend upon someone that we cannot even see. That's faith, isn't it? Eventually, we trust in God and God alone. We're to trust in Christ and Christ alone. And so we go on and we look at verses 5-7 through seven of our text. He says, I saw a dream which made me afraid. Now think about those words. I mean, we have to think of honesty here. We have to think of the very fact that Nebuchadnezzar has already declared himself to be a great king. And some 30 years earlier, he had already erected a, a, a statue that was of all pure gold, plated Remember the, the vision that was given through the interpretation and the dream that, that Daniel had interpreted that, you know, the head was gold, but then the chest was of silver, and then, you know, the midsection was of bronze, and then the legs of iron, and so on and so forth. But all he considered was that he was the king that had, you know, that, that, that was of all gold, and so he made this thing about himself. It was all about him. So look at the honesty of his words. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. If you're the king of all the world, as it were, of all the known world, why would you let anything trouble you? But then again, so was our world shaken to realize that we didn't have a safety net under us. But had we fallen, we would have been lost forever. 
So it's significant that he would, would be honest in this statement of being afraid. And therefore he says, Made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me. <clears throat> his dependency, of course, upon his own <clears throat> government and people and ways and religion and gods. That they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. What's different about this dream from the previous dream was that before he wanted them to tell him what the dream was. Here he only wants the interpretation. Verse 7. And then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Once again, as in chapter 2, the king is troubled by a dream. And now things were going well in his kingdom. But God's getting ready to shake him. There was a fragmentary tablet from his time that was found that gave indication that the king of Babylon marched against Egypt in his 37th year and was victorious. So it was no time to fear, as it says in verse 4. There was no time to fear. He was at rest. He was unconquerable. He was secure. And he was filled with pride as well. Filled with pride. And what does the scripture tell us about pride? Pride always goes before what? Destruction. Pride always goes before destruction. He had what some would call self-esteem overkill. Nowadays we have psycho... No, psychologists, I'm sorry, psychos. Psychiatrists, uh, people that, you know, want to get into your head. And the psychiatrists, especially because they're medical doctors, they, they can write prescriptions and get people on things to make them feel better about themselves. You know, today, because of the pharmaceutical industry, there are a lot of people that uh, uh, are now finding themselves in this self-esteem overkill. Let's talk about me. I, I get troubled when I watch TV and I see people on all kinds of shows, you know, Oprah and Dr. Phil and all kinds of other things, and, and they're just talking about me and me. And, you know, sometimes the, the superficial reason is because, well, we want to help people, you know. But some of the stories, you would just wonder, you know, if they would just come to Jesus, man, they, they wouldn't need to take another drug in their life. And he gives us a little bit of an indication, I should say Nebuchadnezzar does. He gives us a, a little indication of, of this self-esteem overkill in verse, in verse 5. Look at verse 5 because he says, I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head trouble me. I mean, <laughs> he's really got, that's overkill, isn't it? It's a lot about him. And the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar would learn from, that, from, from this is the lesson that we all learn. That we need to be born again of the Spirit of God and we need to die to ourselves and we need to let Christ live in us. 
Very simply, one of the great verses of Scripture that we should all treasure in our hearts and in our minds, Galatians 2, verse 20, that says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, it's okay to say me here. Why? Because the me is dead. And Christ is alive in us. And again, I would say that so many of, of, of people's individual problems and hang-ups in this life would be so different because they would be just taken and, and put on the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm crucified with Christ. What was crucifixion? It was death. I'm crucified with Christ. We've acknowledged and identify with Christ's sufferings as well as his death. But nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And so the life that we now live, we're to live by faith. By the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Getting back to verses 6 and 7 of our text, where he talks about this decree to get all the wise men together and call them all together to hear the dream so that they could interpret it. I mean, I'm reminded of that question. Haven't we been here before? Haven't we been here before, like in chapter 2? Because here another dream is given to the king that troubled him greatly, probably because he knew it was related to him. He knew that it was related directly to him. And so he once again called together these wise men of Babylon to interpret the dream. Now, you'd think he had learned his lesson before. Right? I mean, because they couldn't do it. They, they, you know, it was Daniel, a Hebrew young man, a Hebrew who was a a believer in a single God who came to him and said, listen, I will tell you what the dream is, but let my God tell me what that dream is so I can tell you. And he did it. And then he interpreted that dream. And then he had a bunch of these wise men killed because they didn't do what he had wanted them to do. And he elevated Daniel in his in his position there in, in Babylon. So now, 30 years later, what does he do? The same thing. Because you see, when we're not in God, and we're, when we're not in Christ, we just go over the same material. We just go over the same cycle of sin. It just comes back around. You know, we, we, we treat it as being something a little different, but then it's really the same stuff. I guess you can say sin is sin. No matter how you dress it. Idolatry is still idolatry, no matter how you dress it. 
But the difference here, this time, was that these wise men were told the dream, so all they had to do was interpret the dream, but again, they couldn't. And it would seem that the wise men lacked the courage more than they did the insight. Because I want you to notice, look at verse 7, notice that they did not make the dream known, not that they could not. They did not. Not that they could not. And that was a matter of will. And they had no will because they had no courage. Who doesn't at times repeat the same mistakes? See, now this is the heart check for us. Who doesn't at times repeat the same mistakes? As much as we want to believe this, many times God has has cleansed us, purified our hearts after we've fallen. He's lifted us up. We, we know the, the, the statement is, 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 is somewhat silent, but we hear it, you know, go and sin no more. And we say, no, Lord, I don't want to do this again. But somewhere down the road, we might do it again, right? Am I not? Am, am I alone in this? We've all done it. We learn a little bit more the second time around, right? It's like, I think, okay, I think I better get this. But we've all repeated the same mistakes. The good thing with us is that we know the God who loves us. We just don't want to hurt him. We just don't want to grieve him anymore, you know. This is why his patience is so precious. This is why his goodness is so wonderful. But I want you to remember that the outcome here with Nebuchadnezzar, the outcome will have eternal implications. It is best not to make the same mistakes. So now, as we move on, think about this. <laughs> who, who really helped Nebuchadnezzar before? Daniel, right? So look at, if you will, at verse 8, because have you all ever said this statement? Last but not least. Well, guess who's last but not least? Notice verse 8. It says, but at the last, Daniel. How come he wasn't first? He had already proven himself. But at the last, Daniel came in before me. And remember, this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, so he's speaking in the first person. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belteshazzar. And he has to mention this because that's his king. I mean, that's his, his God is, is in his name, in the, in the name of, that was given to Daniel, Belteshazzar. According to the name of my God, notice, he's, I mean, consider what he's saying. According to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. I'm going to talk about that in just a moment. Because remember who's talking here. Nebuchadnezzar. 
speaking about the time in which he had called upon Daniel, who was Belteshazzar, and according to the name of his God, and, and he was filled with the spirit of the holy gods. Which, by the way, if you look at the New King James, if most of you have the New King James version of the scriptures, it, it says the holy God. And I'll tell you why it says that in just a moment. And why we can actually say that, in fact, what Nebuchadnezzar was saying is that he was pointing to the holy God of Israel. And I'll get to that in just a moment. And then he says, And before him I told the dream, saying, verse 9, O Belteshazzar, master of the magicians, the chief of staff, in other words. That's what that means. He was the master over all the magicians. Who were the magicians? We're not talking about David Copperfield and, you know, all these other guys, you know, they go to Vegas and do their, you know, their tricks. But the magicians were, as we, as, as we had learned before, you know, these were people who, you know, did conjuring and all kinds of other stuff, which, are, which is, of course, pagan. But, but nonetheless, uh, you know, they were used in a governmental uh, capacity as well. And remember that Daniel had been placed over them. So he gives, this is his title, Master of the, of the Magicians. He was the chief of staff. He says, oh, Belteshazzar, because I know this, that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee and no secret troubles thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen and the interpretation thereof. Question. Why at last, Daniel? Why at last? Why was Daniel not sent for sooner? Well, it has been suggested that if the magicians and the astrologers and the soothsayers could have served the king, then Daniel would not have been sought out. But did they? Did they serve the king? Did they actually help the king? No, they couldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Bunch of chickens. Right? I mean, they they just feared. But the excuse and the pretense of men without grace, men that are without grace, is that they would never run to God until all other options fail them. And Nebuchadnezzar is saying that at that moment in time, he was a man without grace, and he would never run to God until all other options failed. Is that not the same with the world today? Who wants anything from God? Who wants anything from us who are believers in Jesus Christ? They don't come to us. They try everything else. But in desperation sometimes and many times, they will come to us by night as it were and they will say, would you pray for me? Would you help me? But you're never the first one they come to because they've exhausted all of their other ways of trying to get things accomplished. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel by his Babylonian name Belteshazzar according to the name of my God reinforces the thought that the king still considered his Babylonian deity. No matter what the God of Daniel had done for him. (laughs) The The Babylonian God being Bel, his God, which means that what he had seen previously in Daniel and the three young Hebrew men, Hazariah, uh, uh, Mishael, and Azariah, uh, 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 
Hananiah, I should say, Mishael and Azariah, was, not, was enough to impress him. I mean, it impressed him, didn't it? Back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, all the things that happened, it impressed him. But it wasn't enough to convert him. It wasn't enough to convert him. Were we ever like that? Were we ever impressed by people that would tell us about what God had done for them? We were impressed, but it didn't convert us. It didn't really change our hearts. We might have been curious, but we weren't committed. Were you ever there? I was. I was curious about the things that people were telling me about Jesus, but I wasn't committed to it. I knew about Jesus. I went to catechism. I knew about him. I knew about the days, the holy days. I knew about all that stuff, but I didn't know Jesus. Big difference, isn't it? When you know the God that loves you with an everlasting love. You see, being impressed with God is not the same as being converted by God. And by the way, when it comes down to judgment, it isn't about being impressed by God that's going to get us into the kingdom of heaven. But knowing God and Him knowing us. People will cry out to the Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? Didn't we do this for you? And didn't we do that for you? Just read Matthew chapter 7. There toward the end of that chapter, Jesus said, Depart from me, for I never knew you. That's chilling. If you don't know Jesus Christ. You know all about him. You could go to seminary. Eventually it becomes cemetery. doesn't matter how much you know about Jesus. It matters, do you know him? And does he know you? It isn't just knowing about the Lord that matters. People need to know the Lord personally and they need to know him eternally. Eternally. Nebuchadnezzar was obviously still a polytheist, a believer in many gods. Even though he had acknowledged the Lord's sovereignty years before, Daniel 2 verse 47, the king answered unto Daniel and said, Of a truth it is that your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of secrets, seeing thou couldst reveal this secret. Impressed, but not changed. Excuse me, in our text, in verse 9, the king used the phrase, the Spirit of the Holy Gods. Some, of course, would have said that because he used that phrase, he wasn't saved. Well, guess what? He wasn't saved at that time. He wasn't saved at that time. But further examination of that phrase, as some more modern translations will attest to, 
the, the three very important words in that phrase, and I, and I want to draw your attention to it again. The Spirit of the holy gods is in thee. Now that's King James. But the Spirit, the Ruach, in the Hebrew, of the holy, the Kaddish, that is a Hebrew understanding belonging to one God. And the word God's and why the King James translators did not see this, because if you look at the Hebrew or, or you know, the text that would have been transcribed from the Aramaic to the Hebrew is the word Elah, not Elohim. Any word ending I am means plural. The word is Elah or Elah, which is one God. Isn't that interesting? An interesting statement. But nonetheless, it's still at this point, he's still not saved. So whether he says holy gods or holy God, the key to understanding what he says is in the word Kaddish, holy. Because there's no other holy like our God. But it brings to mind the question that we need to ourselves considered tonight what, what things do Christians say that, that might be equally uh, pagan if it was indeed that he said holy gods you know that would have been a holy uh, that would have been a pagan statement right but I kept thinking you know sometimes do we say pagan things too I mean none of us really would want to admit to these things but consider that we've all said something at one time or another that is quote-unquote pagan. Have we? I'm not here to offend you, but let me just ask you a few questions. Have you ever used the terms Mother Earth or Mother Nature? That's pagan! Y'all looking at me like, I've never used that. You go to public school, you've used it. Right? Mother Nature... Oh, look at what Mother Nature's doing out there in New York and in the back in the East, man. Mother Nature, you know, this and that. Really? That's pagan. Only Druids would say that kind of stuff. Any Druids here tonight? Hope not. Have you ever said knock on wood? Oh, some people do. Hey, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling good, knock on wood. That's pagan. Don't do that anymore. <laughs> if you're going to do it, knock up here. Hey, have you ever wished upon a star? When you wish upon a star, how I wonder where you are. Oh, thank Walt Disney for this pagan statement. It's pagan. Wishing upon a star. Thank my lucky stars. What lucky stars? Which brings to mind the most popular phrase of them all. Good luck. Pagan. Sorry if you say it. But that's what it is. Anywhere in the scriptures say that we have good luck? I don't see it. Never seen the word there. Well, what about break a mirror and you get seven years bad luck? If that's the case, man, I got like 500 years of uh, 
Because every time I look in the mirror in the, in the morning, man, the mirror breaks, you know. All right, so you understand then. It's quite possible to say it. I mean, you're not going to go to hell because you say these things. I hope not. I mean, I don't want you to. But you see how easy it is. So, until we further examine that particular statement, you know, we just took it from that, that standpoint of the level of, of, uh, of the statement. Because still, even, even in the modern translations, there are some that still would, would say on, the, on, on the, uh, the margins of the Bibles that there is some sense that it's really speaking of God's, that he's, that he's still, because he's polytheistic, is still at that time. So that's, that's the point there. Well, let's move on from that because, you know, I don't want you guys throwing things at me tonight, you know. All right. I'll be lucky that I don't get hit. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> let's look on at the dream now. Let's look at the dream. We're only going to look at the dream tonight. We're going to look at the interpretation next time. So here's the dream, verses 10 through uh, 18. And thus were the visions of my head in my bed. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth. And the height thereof was, was great. The tree grew and was strong. And the height thereof reached unto heaven. And the sight thereof to the end of all the earth. The leaves thereof were fair. The fruit thereof much. And in it was meat for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it. And the fowls of the heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof. And all flesh was fed of it. I saw in the visions of my head upon my bed. And behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. Wow, that's an interesting phrase. A watcher and a holy one. We'll talk about that in a moment. He cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree and cut off his branches, shake off his leaves and scatter his fruit. Let the beasts get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of his roots in the earth, even with a band of iron and brass in the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let this portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Are you, are you realizing now why we have to wait till next week? Because it's going to take a while to, to sort all of these things out. Let his heart be changed from man's. Now get this. This is talking directly about Nebuchadnezzar, isn't it? Let, this, let his heart be changed from man's and let a beast's heart be given unto him. And let seven times pass over him. Now most commentators and scholars will say that that seven times passing over him is seven years. There carries a tremendous prophetic significance to that which we will get to next time. Just thought I'd whet your appetite for next week. This matter, verse 17, this matter is by the decree of the watchers. <clears throat> Not just one watcher as we saw earlier, verse 13 I believe. 
But this matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomever or whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest of men. In other words, the kingdoms of this earth for the most part are ruled by the basest of men. You all not understand what the basest of men is? The lowest? And if you apply that prophetically today around the world, can you find anyone that uh, aside from those in Israel, but can you find anyone in the world today that would give even one moment to the God of Israel, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to the Lord Jesus Christ? Anyone? They don't even want to mention his name in the United Nations. They don't even want to mention his name. basest of men. We'll talk about that more next time. Verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belteshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able for the spirit of the holy gods is in thee. And so the king knew the dream somehow was related to him, but what did it mean? What did it mean? Was it good news? Or was it bad news? From, what, from just a uh, superficial reading of it tonight, I mean, it doesn't sound like good news. What troubled the king so much was that he knew that it wasn't. He knew that it wasn't good news. You see, the end result of the dream was that God was going to reveal Himself and His authority to this king. Something that this autocratic ruler wanted nothing to do with, much like the rulers of today. And while we look at the dream and the interpretation, or while we should, uh, I should say we will look at the dream and the interpretation next time in greater detail, let me just close with a few points from what we just read of the dream. First of all, the tree that he saw in his dream was significant because of its size, because of its beauty, because of its fruit. It provided food and it provided shelter for all the animals and the birds that lived under it or, or, or in it. Significantly though, birds and beasts are often types of unclean spirits in Scripture. And we'll deal with that a little bit more next time. But let me just give you some examples. For, for instance, in Jeremiah 5.27. Let's see. Did I finish reading that? I guess I did. Jeremiah 5.27, it says, As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full of deceit. Therefore they are become great and waxen rich. I mean, they just grow richer and richer. But notice what it says. As a cage is full of birds, so are their houses full 
of deceit. You can go all the way to Revelation chapter 18. There's many others in between here that we could deal with. But in Revelation 18 verse 2 it says, And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now consider again, Babylon, we, you know, back in the book of Revelation when we studied this chapter a few months ago. The implications of Babylon and the judgment upon Babylon, not only in, in, in ancient times, but in, in the time yet to come. Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen as is, and has become the habitation of devils or demons and the whole of every foul spirit, notice, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Then, of course, we can, we can add a whole bunch of verses to deal with just beasts themselves. I mean, think about the beasts that uh, are going to be seen in, in the, uh, again, in the book of Revelation that talks about beasts that, that are going to come because of the influence of, of Satan upon Antichrist and the false prophet. And, and so you think about those particular uh, usages of, 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 of animals and beasts as types of, of, uh, of unclean spirits. And then, of course, uh, there is Satan himself. But another significant detail is in, is in verse 13. I mentioned a watcher and a holy one. When you look at that particular phrase, a watcher, a holy one, it's really one... one being, but uh, later on we meet watchers, plural. But this watcher, this holy one, is the one that would be proclaiming because it refers to a messenger from heaven. So an angel of some sort. And remember, angels are not all the same. There are some different types of angels. Scriptures mention them as cherubim or seraphim or seraphim. And, and, and others, archangels, whatnot. And then angels, uh, simply angels. But the word is a simple Aramaic term for watcher, which is the word ir, ir, I-R, ir, which refers, listen to this, it refers to a guardian. It refers to a guardian, much like an angel with the task of protecting. So this is a messenger angel that is a guardian and a watcher. That's an interesting uh, thought. We'll go more deeper into it next time. But there, there is, and we have to remember this, there is an unseen war going on. There is an unseen war going on in the spirit realm, in the spirit world. Paul makes that clear to us in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. And the word wickedness here is actually, in the Greek, it is in the plural. So it reads, against spiritual wickednesses in high places. So consider then the vast amount of, of uh, spiritual uh, beings that are uh, principalities, powers, uh, demonic in essence 
that's a pretty heavy picture, but I don't want you to forget that there are angelic hosts from heaven that we can't see either. And by the way, if we can get a number, of course, there's one-third that fell, you know, with, with Lucifer. Uh, so one-third, and it's a, it's a great number, so it, but remember then, there's two-thirds that are on the side of, of Almighty God. Uh, and praise the Lord for that. And we can't see that either. And the only verse that I can share with you about that uh, before we close tonight is Hebrews 1, verse 7, where Paul is speaking about angels. And he says, And of the angels he saith, Who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. Thankful. We are to be thankful what God has given to us in the spirit realm for our good, for our protection. We have watchers. I don't want to sound, you know, but that's the word that is used there in in the uh, in the Aramaic ir, and, and you know it's all translated very similar in the in the Hebrew. The same word, ir, a watcher, a guardian, protecting God's own people. With that in mind, we'll come back to this next time and finish the chapter. Uh, there's a lot in this chapter, but we're going to try to make sure that we complete that before moving on to chapter 5. But uh, remember, consider Nebuchadnezzar. What he's saying. How he realizes this dream pertains to him, to his life. And what God does to open his eyes and hopefully to open his heart. Let's remember that it isn't about head knowledge that matters. It's about heart knowledge, knowing the Lord inside and out, trusting in him with all of our heart, loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is what we're told in Deuteronomy 6. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And these are the things that we teach our children. This is what we are to teach. Let's, let's in 2015, let us really focus. For those of you that have young, young people in your homes, focus your attention upon showing them who Jesus Christ really is. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Nebuchadnezzar saw him, but where did he see him? He saw him in the midst of the fiery furnace, protecting and keeping the three Hebrew children, the three Hebrew young men. And so, let's trust in him. with all of our hearts. Let's all stand and let's pray. Give you a chance to stretch a little. Father, thank you so much for this time of getting us back into the book of Daniel after a little bit of a layover here from the holidays. And we're just asking you, Lord, now to help us to bring all of our attention, Lord God, to your word. Not only tonight, but as we 
As we get into the Gospel of John on Saturday and Sunday, Lord, we, we just look forward now just to continue to be fed and to be built up in, in, in the nurture and admonition of your precious word. And Father, we ask that as we leave here tonight, uh, may you grant us rest, true rest, and, and peace and safety and security so that we might serve you tomorrow with a joyous and joyful heart. We ask, Father, that you protect, Lord, uh, our people as they head home and grant us, Father God, just uh, a heart filled with, with joy and gladness to serve you in whatever capacity you call us to do so. So, Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word, and we thank you, Father, for your spirit to help us understand it. May you continue to work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.